Hi everyone, my name is Barbara and I'm very grateful, Alan on. And um, I marked my journey uh, from March 19th, 1984. So it's very good to be with y'all. Uh, Dick and I did have a little bit of adventure getting here. He had he totaled his vehicle recently and so we had to get a rental car yesterday morning and um, then we uh, had, he had to, I had to visit the doctor for something and then we got caught in wreck after wreck after wreck. So we got here about 10 p.m. last night and expecting a miracle, you know, the, the kindness that sober alcoholics give is just unbelievable. Steve was waiting in front of the hotel for us uh, to take us to, out to eat last, late last night. And um, I, have, I see friends I have met here in the room and friends I hope to meet in the future. And uh, I'm just glad to be with y'all. Um, I, uh, I want to thank um, particularly Steve for inviting us and Trina for being uh, my host, even though we, we visited on the phone several times. I'm looking forward to getting to know her a little bit better. We had a beautiful basket in our room. Now, when I got here, the drummer was over here drumming, and so I really thought that maybe they're all going to do rim shots or something every time I said something funny. I wasn't really sure. I haven't ever had anybody do that at, at, a, at a first talk. Um, but um, it was just one of those, maybe this will happen, maybe, you know, never mind. Anyway, um, <laughs> I like to start my talk with my 12 steps before Al-Anon. Number one, I admitted that I was powerful over others and that your lives were certainly unmanageable. Two, came to believe that I was the power that could restore you to sanity. Three, made a decision for you to turn your will and life over to the care of me. Four, made a searching and fear-filled inventory of everyone that I knew and found them lacking. Five, admitted to God, myself, and anyone that would listen, the exact nature of your wrongs. Six, identified your defects of character and became willing to assist you in removing all of them. Seven, humbly, ha, assisted you in removing your defects of character, except when to do so would cause me harm. Eight, made a list of all of those who had harmed me and vowed to get even with them all. Nine, waited and waited and waited and waited for everyone to make direct amends to me. Ten, continue to take your inventory and when you were wrong, promptly pointed it out. Eleven, sought through martyrdom, mothering, managing, and manipulating to improve your conscious contact with me. Asking only that you read my mind and carry out my wishes. And 12, having had a complete emotional, physical, and spiritual breakdown as a result of this type of living, I tried to drag all those I love down with me and get sympathy and pity from all who would listen. But what's sad, that was pretty much who I was. Um, you know, alcoholism may have affected me differently than it affected the alcoholic, but it affected me every bit as severely. When I came in the rooms of Al-Anon, I, um, I had intestinal problems. I had a stomach ulcer. I had an active eating disorder. I was uh, severely depressed. I was suicidal half the time, spiritually bankrupt. But nobody had a clue because Al-Anons have a way of presenting a Teflon outside and while we're dying in the inside. Sometimes I think of it as kind of like I was a cil empty cylinder and I was a mirror. I would reflect what you needed to hear or needed to see. If you were happy, I was happy. If you were sad, I was sad. If you were celebrating, I'd celebrate with you. If you were in grief, I would uh, also grieve with you. 
but I didn't have my own feelings. I really didn't even know I had them when I came to Al-Anon. I, you know, I had kind of grown up in one of those we don't talk about anything negative families, and so over the years I had just killed any real emotions I had. Um, the way I got to Al-Anon, and I'll share that and then, and then share a little bit more about where I came from, the way I got to Al-Anon is um, I was uh, dating Dick, and um, I'll tell you a little bit more about how that, how, how that came to be in a few minutes. But um, on our you know, first few dates, he said, you know, I, will, I would never marry anybody unless they were in, in Al-Anon. And uh, so I went to Al-Anon to manipulate him into marrying me. And so it really doesn't matter how you get here. It works anyway. Um, but it worked, you know. We're, but we've been married uh, on the 20th. We were married 31 years. So, um, And I do not think that we would be married today if it wasn't for the program. Um, I came from a long line of alcoholics. Now, in those early days when Dick and I were going out, he asked me if I had any alcohols in, in my family, and I told him no. That, I'm telling you that to show you how much denial I was in. Um, my dad came from a, was a baby of 14 kids, and um, his uh, father tried to commit suicide as a, as a result of his alcoholism when my dad was seven years old. And five years later, my grandfather died in the North Carolina State Mental Institution. My father hadn't seen his father um, in about five years. And so he snuck into the funeral home to see his dad one last time. And what he saw was a body with both arms and both legs broken, and the body was black and blue. And he never told anybody that. You know, my parents started sharing their secrets. They never got to this program. But they did start to share little things about their life as I got into the program. But um, anyway, I did some research. And it, in that period of time in North Carolina, they were experimenting on alcoholics. Um, and they had decided to try to break a limb to see if that would shock alcoholism out of somebody. So this is only two generations ago, but this is what happened to my grandfather as a result of his alcoholism. Um, several years ago, Dick and I were speaking in Maryland, and uh, after the conference was over, we went up to Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. And you'll hear him speak tonight, but he comes from this long, long line of military heroes. Um, and so we saw the Battle of Gettysburg from his ancestors' point of view. And then we came on down and we stayed in Andy Griffith's childhood home in, um, what's the name of the town? Mount Airy. And uh, in Mount Airy, you know, that, that's where Andy Griffith was from, so you could stay in his home. And in the morning, the next step morning, Goober delivers you a paper and some coffee. And um, so anyway, we went to downtown Mount Airy, and we ate at the Snappy Lunch, and we went over to this museum. And um, in the museum was a museum of Andy Griffith show, but they had a special exhibit, The Tragedy of the Allen Women. And Allen was my maiden name, and so I, um, uh, Dick said, we better go see what this is, because my relatives were from uh, North Carolina, and we were in North Carolina, so I found out that day that uh, my relatives perpetrated the worst courthouse shooting of all times. It was kind of a Hatfield and McCoy's moonshine thing, from what I can gather. And um, there was uh, a love interest from one side of the moonshine land and, uh, that fell in love with one somebody on the other side. And, I don't know, it resulted in this crazy courthouse shooting. Um, and my dad was from Rockingham. And so he, uh, you know, here he is. He's moonshiner, from a moonshiner family. And... 
NASCAR was invented in Rockingham, so I could twist that and say, well, my family invented NASCAR. But um, I don't know if they did or not, but they were at least moonshine runners. Anyway, my mom and dad, my mom's mother and father were alcoholic. Um, my uh, dad's, uh, my mom's dad uh, came from great wealth. And um, if you've ever been to Atlanta or you came through the International, he once owned all the property that is now Peachtree and 14th Street, right in the middle of Midtown. And um, his, my great-grandfather gave all his kids some money and said, make something out of it, you get some more. Make nothing out of it, and you get nothing. And so my grandfather, being an alcoholic, had a bunch of parties, went through all the money, got written out of the will, and actually when he died was buried in a pauper's grave. Later they moved him. And what did my grandmother do? Well, she kicked him out and married another alcoholic. Um, that grandmother was the one I knew most growing up. I had these two adult children of alcoholics. My mother may or may or not have been an alcoholic. She actually quit drinking when she met Dick, which is interesting, but that she did. So um, anyway, um, I had these two adult children of alcoholics, and they didn't really know how to be adults. They didn't know they weren't parented very well. They didn't know how to be parents. So they took me to my grandmother's every weekend. And the first thing my grandmother and I did every Saturday morning was go to the liquor store. I have great childhood memories of liquor stores. Um, they would take me behind the counter and they'd have some candy or toys or something and the liquor store owners or the cash register person would talk to me while my grandmother did her shopping for the week. And it probably was illegal back then too, but my grandmother was a very good patron. In fact, I later figured out the reason that she went to three liquor stores is she didn't want any of them to know exactly how much she bought every week. So anyway, we get the liquor, and then we would be off to some kinds of errand. My grandmother was a very creative alcoholic. She would come up with something that she and I could do together that would involve alcohol. Uh, of course, I didn't see that at the time. But we would go to a Broadway show where they had um, an open bar. We'd go to an art opening, or we'd go to a big festival in Piedmont Park, and there would be a beer garden. Um, she would go get her hair fixed, and I found out from some of my AA women friends that the place she went to get her hair fixed, they gave the ladies a couple glasses of wine while they fixed her hair. Or um, we often would go shopping for ball gowns or some kind of fancy dresses we were going to wear to some event. We never bought anything. I never did quite get that, but at this store in downtown Atlanta called Regenstein's, they would give the ladies some wine while they would shop. So um, anyway, it was whatever it was, my grandmother had a few drinks. Or we would go to these fine ladies' places to eat. There's Mary Max Tea Room. There's a bunch of southern tea rooms around there. And she would have her three martinis, and I would have my three Shirley Temples. I felt so big. So we would finish whatever the adventure was of the day, and we would go back to my grandmother's house, and we'd unpack the trunk of liquor, and she would sit down from, uh, to watch Lawrence Welk, uh, over um, her martinis, and I would um, have some cheese toast. Actually, the only thing I ever remember eating at my grandmother's house was cheese toast. And usually in the middle of Lawrence, well, grandmother would fall asleep. Now, I know she passed out now, but I didn't then. So many a Saturday night, I was hurt or sick or hungry or tired uh, or scared, and I didn't have anybody to take care of me. One particular Saturday night, I went out on the back porch, and I cut my feet on a bunch of glass. And I didn't know what to do. I couldn't seem to wake grandmother up. So I got in the tub, and I saw all this red blood rushing out. I didn't know what to do. And somehow, either out of her drunken stupor, she woke up. She came. She pulled me out of the tub. She had me stand on two towels. 
and she went back to bed. But, as I said, when Dick asked me if I had alcoholism in my family, I said no. I didn't know there was alcoholism. Many a Saturday night, uh, she would wake back up, and then we would go out to the honky-tonks. Now, these were not the fine ladies' establishments. These were the southern honky-tonk, concrete floor, maybe sawdust-floored places, and I would be trying to cuddle up on a wet, beer-soaked floor while she would be partying above me. Yet I had no idea that that was alcoholism. Um, I can tell you that as soon as I found excuses not to go to grandmother's on the weekend, I did. Um, and I grew up very judgmental of alcohol. Now, I will tell you that part of that was because I also grew up Southern Baptist, but that wasn't all of it. So um, anyway, I um, um, found reasons not to go to grandmother's and went on into school. My dad told me, my mom and dad told me if I was going to go to college, I had to earn scholarships. They weren't going to have money to send me, and so I was pretty much a nerd. I uh, had three dates in all of high school. I was just terrified of um, people. And um, so I made great grades. I finished um, second in my class. I went off to save the world. There was Joan of Arc and there was Barbara the Baptist, and I went to seminary. Um, so I w came up to Louisville, and my first semester in seminary, um, I was uh, playing the piano at a church and leading some of the children's choirs. And on a s Sunday night, a young man came in and addressed the congregation and asked if he could speak. And he got up in front of the congregation, and he told a little of his AA story, and he asked if he said, I really want to make amends to the church, and to do that, I want to stay and be a volunteer for a while. Now, I've never seen anybody make an amends to a Baptist church before that or since, but that man today is my husband. And um, now, it wasn't that easy. Um, I was... Um, I went to a mu I was a music major in college, and um, it, if and it was in the 70s, and there was there were a lot of guys that went to school, and it was a Baptist college, and there was a lot of guys that I went to school with that uh, had gone there, and they had not come out of the closet yet. So um, most of the guys that I dated in college were gay, and uh, you know, my first love, you know, I, we'd been going out for a while when he finally told me he was gay, and I thought. All he noted was the love of a good woman, me, and I could fix that too. But it didn't work that way. So um, anyway, I got up to seminary, and I was still in the music school. And um, I was a music and counseling major. And I uh, was going out with a guy, and when Dick asked me out, he, he, he said his sponsor had told him that he had been in the program long enough to date if he could find anybody to go out with him. So he asked me out. Now, we've been married over 31 years now, and I do not remember him asking me out. I don't think I'm going to remember it, but he did. And I told him no, because I was going out with somebody in the church who happened to be gay. And uh, anyway, um, so I have finished seminary, but the year that I graduated from seminary, um, there was a resolution that was passed. Uh, it basically said that Eve was the first to sin, and therefore women shouldn't lead over men, and women in ministry would be strongly discouraged. So here I had spent seven years of higher education, uh, and I was told I couldn't do what I had planned on doing. And I tried anyway. I had lots and lots of interviews, lots and lots of interviews. And um, I'll come back to that in a few minutes. Um, there, um, 
You know, so I'm back in I'm back in Atlanta. I left Atlanta to, um, I mean, left Louisville to go back to Atlanta, and I found a job as the assistant director of the education division for the Georgia Baptist Convention. So I was promoting Baptist colleges, and I put together a Baptist history museum, and I was visiting all the Baptist student union facilities and all college campuses in Georgia, and it was a pretty good job, and I liked it. And they called me in one day, and they said, we really don't want to do this, but we've been told we have to get rid of all women in manager, managerial jobs. And we're going to give you six months, but you're going to have to go. So it was at that point, um, or around that point, that Dick reentered my life. I was um, in a mall in Atlanta, and Dick came up to me and said, I know, I know you're from somewhere. And I said, I didn't think anybody actually ever used that line. And um, I'd gotten a little cynical. Uh, and uh, he convinced me that he knew who I was, that we had met at Linden Baptist Church. And um, uh, he, uh, he, he kept on trying to get me to give him my phone number. I finally did at the time, I think, because I was a little nervous. But uh, I just wanted to get rid of him. So he gave me his phone number. And I don't, I mean, I gave him my phone number. And I'm not sure how many times he called me before I agreed to go out. I, honestly, I don't remember why I gave him such a hard time. I think somehow or other, I really relate to Pride and Prejudice, if any of y'all have read that story. I think I was like Elizabeth Bennett, and he was Mr. Darcy. So um, anyway, um, I finally agreed to go out with him. And on the first date, he took me to this very nice five-star restaurant, five restaurant, and we went out to a Broadway show. And over the course of dinner, he told me his AA story again. And so I remembered parts of it because I had heard it that night at that church. And the second date, we went out to an equally nice restaurant and a movie. And the third date, he had a catered dinner brought in to an open amphitheater called Chastain Park under the stars. And it was a Johnny Mathis concert. But this was the third date. And so um, during this evening, he told me about this prayer that he prayed when he first saw me at Linden Baptist Church. He's seen me up in the choir, and he said there was like a halo around my, ne my head or something, and, you know, his, his, his sponsor told him he could go out. And so uh, he asked me out, and I told him no. And, um, you know, so he wasn't quite so sure about me. You know, it was like, but he, he was trying again. And so we went out, and um, I told him when he, when he was telling me how he thought we were destined to be together that I wasn't really even sure I was attracted to him. And I had told him enough about me by then that he said that he didn't think I knew what to do with a heterosexual, which is probably true. <laughs> so anyway, we didn't go out for a little while. And during that period of time, I kind of went back through all the gay guys, and they were still gay. And, you know, the, the preachers that were just looking for a preacher's wife that I had dated in here or there once or twice or three times in seminary, they were, they had already found their preacher's wives, and I didn't want to be a preacher's wife anyway. And, um, you know, and there were a few, you know, kind of not so great people I'd gone out with, and they were still not so great. So anyway, I called Dick, and I told him maybe I'd made a mistake. And um, so we started going out. And um, now by then, you know, it had been almost six months, and uh, I, I called him originally to see if he would help me work on my resume because I've been given, I've been told I had to leave this church, this Georgia Baptist Convention job and needed help. But we started dating and uh, on our first weekend away, okay, on our first weekend away, um, we went to Charleston. And Dick 
had rented out almost the whole floor of this beautiful house, antebellum house. It was a bit, you know, bedroom with a four-poster four bed, and there was a room with a grand piano, living room area, and it was so romantic. But unfortunately, it was also the weekend of the Final Four basketball, and Kentucky was in it. And so, you know, he was watching ball games all weekend long, and here I thought we were going to have a romantic weekend. So by the time we came back, um, I thought maybe I should go to an Al-Anon meet. So um, I wasn't really sure why I went. I was, you know, part of it was manipulating him. Part of it was I was wanted to figure out this alcoholism thing. So I started going to Al-Anon. Now, I wanted to find the perfect meeting. So I went to almost every Al-Anon meeting there is in greater Atlanta. I was going all over the place. And I'd arrive about the last minute. I'd leave during the prayer. Now, if any of you are that person, I can relate. It takes a while to to get used to how friendly we are. So um, I... uh uh, kept on going to meetings. Dick asked me if I'd found a sponsor, and I hadn't yet. So he suggested someone, and there was no way I was going to pick who he suggested. So I went to my next meeting, and the woman who led the meeting sounded like she had her act together, and so I asked her to be my sponsor. And I had already done independent study, the Cliff Notes version of Steps 1 through 4. Uh, I don't recommend this. And um, I had already written my fourth step. It wasn't very fearless and moral, but I had written it. And so um, I asked this woman to be my sponsor that night. I said, I've already done my f- I've gotten up through the fourth step. And she said, well, why don't you give it to me and let me look at it tonight, and I'll call you and let you know what I think. So I gave it to her. Now, this is not the way to do a fourth and fifth step, but I didn't know. And so I gave it to her. And she called me about two hours later, and she said, run. She said, you don't need to marry this guy. You don't have to have a life with somebody who's an alcoholic. You can still get out. Run. And uh, I thought, maybe I didn't pick the right sponsor. But uh, And I actually did go back to that meeting one more time to get um, my four-step back from her. But my, my brain, you know, alcoholics have blackouts. I have, I, for lack of a better term, I'll, I call them amnesia. It's just... Um, when so, I resent somebody enough or something that happens I don't like, that person just leaves the memory bank. And I don't remember what she looked like. I don't remember her name. I, th- I remember what church the meeting was at because there's actually not a meeting there anymore. So I have never knowingly run into her again. And I've, she's never run up after I've told my story and said, oh, it was me. Um, so I hope she's still in the program, and I hope things got better for her. But um, so I didn't go back to that meeting except that one time. And I found a sponsor, and I was still kind of doing the Cliff Nitz version, but I was doing, I'd learned the buzzwords enough that I convinced Dick that I was active in Al-Anon, and uh, we decided to get married. Now, when Dick and I got married, the church was kind of divided into thirds. There was a third of of the people in the room that were alcoholic, and about a third of them were Baptists that I knew, and the other third were family members, and we had um, alcohol at the wedding for um, uh, for our family members, and I'm not sure who it bothered more, the members of AA or the Baptists, but I'm pretty sure it was the Baptists. So anyway, um, we were, um, uh, Dick and I got married, and I kept a bag packed the first three years of our marriage. Now, my family didn't argue about anything because we didn't have feelings. So, uh, and we never stated our opinion. Uh, I remember when we, when we were first going, Dick and I were first going out, and if we would, um, Dick, he'd ask me where I wanted to go for, to eat, and I'd say I didn't know. And 
finally he pulled over on the side of the road and said, we're not going anywhere until you tell me where you want to go. So I picked the restaurant that I thought he would like the best. But I slowly realized that I actually had opinions. And then we had to learn about compromise, which was actually much harder. I wonder at times if he's glad he taught me this lesson. But um, anyway, so my parents, you know, they never had opinions about anything. They, you know, we would go out, the three, the four of us, my brother and me and my mom and dad with Dick, and all of us were, I don't care whatever you want to do. I don't care. Anything's fine with the hour, whatever you want. And so, you know, I'm, I'm sure it drove them crazy. But um, his family would argue over white or wheat bread with dinner. And two hours later, they were still arguing. It had morphed into politics and religion and, you know, uh, sports and childhood trauma and whatever else, you know. They just recreationally argue. So I, so Dick does too. And, and so I learned how to argue. But every time things would get kind of hot, I would announce I was going to leave. And I would go to the closet and I'd get out my bag and I would walk and say, I'm going to go. And he said, well, yeah, I know. I said, you don't understand, I'm leaving. And he said, I got it. And so I would walk over to the door, and I would start to open the door. I'd look back and say, you, you understand, I'm going to go. And he said, I do. And so I'd go out the door, and then I'd stick my head back in. I'd say, I really mean it. And he said, I know you do. And so I'd get down to the car with my bag, and in my fantasy, you know, uh, he would come running down the stairs and say, oh, beloved, don't go. Um, but he never did that. And Part of the reason he didn't is because he went to Al-Anon speaker meetings at conventions, and he hung out with Al-Anons, and he knew everything that we try to do to manipulate anybody, and nothing ever worked, ever worked. So I would go drive around. Sometimes I'd go see my parents, but I didn't want them to think I was having marital trouble. So uh, sometimes I'd just drive around, and uh, two or three hours, I think the longest I was ever gone was about six, I would come back and with my little bag, and I never spent the night out. Uh, and Sam, and I, sometime I wouldn't announce I was back, and sometime I would just walk back in. And he said, "Good to see you again." And uh, now, Dick was six and a half years sober when we got married, and I was a brand new Alanon who really wasn't working the steps very well. And sometimes when I think about who was in the most denial, I, it was him. He didn't realize how sick I was. So <clears throat> anyway, uh, we started to. Um, uh, you know, started to make some friends in the program. And Dick was also on the, the hotline for AA. And, you know, he uh, would get calls uh, to go down to the bus station and pick up somebody who was wanting some help. And uh, he would bring them back to sleep in the extra room. And there was times I would see myself like Lois, you know, helping the alcoholic in the other bedroom. And <laughs> but I wasn't. And, uh in 1985, we went to the International Convention in Montreal, and we got on the plane, and um, it was one of those L-1011s. They don't fly them anymore. It had five seats in the middle and two on each, each outside. Huge plane, and um, somebody had made an announcement, were there any friends of Bill W. on the plane, and there were well over 100 people that raised their hand. So Dick was suddenly... I could see what he might have been like table hopping drinking because he was bouncing all over the plane, talking to people. He'd see, he saw people on the plane he knew. And I never felt more like I didn't fit in. And we got to Montreal, and if you went to Atlanta or if you've been to any other internationals, people run across the street to give you a hug and greeters everywhere. And I was still at that point, the new Al and I, you could tell him we don't quite want a hug. You know, we kind of block it. We're not quite sure about all this. And that was kind of where I was. And so we got back to the room that night, and 
<clears throat> I walked into the bathroom and I came out with a razor in my hand and I told Dick that I thought I was going to kill myself. Now, I didn't get the reaction I thought I was going to get. He started laughing at me. And he is going to speak tonight, and so I have to tell you that it was one of those pink Bic Daisy razors, and I had been using it for about a week to shave my legs, so I wasn't going to hurt myself very much with this razor. So, um, but um, I, the only one of us that's ever been physical with the other is me. I tried to punch him in the gut, and, um, I, and then I just broke. He said, honey, if there's ever a time for you to go to Al-Anon for you, it might be here. We're at the International Convention. And sure enough, the next morning was the opening of Al-Anon's first international convention, because Al-Anon's international used to be held at the same time as AA's, and now it's different. But I went to that opening session, and guess who the speaker was? Lois Wilson. And uh, I'll never forget what a gift that was. When I was ready to hear the message of Al-Anon for me, Lois was the one that brought it to me. And she talked about the fact that there was not a spiritual side of this program, that it was a spiritual program. It was a transforming way of living that we never had to be the same again. She also talked about Al-Anon and Alatine and, and AA, our big three A's, and how we're a big family. And I'm grateful that y'all include Al-Anon in your convention. Uh, it seems more and more conventions are even eliminating Al-Anon in conventions. So I'm very grateful that you include us. And I miss that family feel that doesn't seem to be here as much as it was when I first came into Al-Anon. But uh, regardless, Lois helped me take the first step. By the time I left uh, Montreal, I had finally taken the first step. Now, second and third step you would think would be easy for me. I went to seminary, and I thought it would be easy too. Yeah, there's a God. I could tell. I could preach theology to you, whatever. But it was actually a whole lot harder because of that. I kind of see the steps holding hands with each other. And sometimes there's something in the step before it or the step after it that we have to do before we can really take the step. And my sponsor was, uh, was healthy and helpful enough to suggest I do a God inventory. So I had to do a fourth and fifth step on my relationship with God before I could take the second and third step. Um, and so I, all, I, I wrote down all those things that had happened to me in churches and all those times that I thought God had rejected me. And I, I also kept a journal during that time. I, kept, I called it a God journal. And every day I would write something in it where I saw God beyond my human understanding. It might have been in a phone call when I was down. It might have been in the ma money to pay a bill. It might have been in a hug at a meeting. It might have been in one of your stories, because I loved AA and Al-Anon stories from the get-go. And when you had a miracle in your life, it helped me. So I would write those down. It might be a sunrise or a sunset, or it might have been my dog, Booger Bear. Um, Dick and I were kind of in our downwardly mobile period during that time, and we, uh, we were really having some serious financial problems, and I think it's because I needed to learn this lesson. I didn't really think God cared about me because I had decided to serve God, and God didn't want me. I didn't find a job in the church. And I wrote down all the crazy things that happened to me. And I'm only going to tell you one of them, uh, one interview. I was still living in Louisville, and I drove down to Alabama for an interview for a position. It was a long drive. I don't remember the town in Alabama. I don't remember the name of the church. I don't remember what anybody looked like. Again, it went into the amnesia pile. 
But I walked in, and there was about 50 chairs in a circle, and there was one in the middle. And the guy right across from me said, we just wanted to see what someone like you, a woman, who would have the audacity to apply for this job would look like. That's all. And I didn't know what to say. Now, I've thought of a whole lot of things since then. But um, I didn't say anything. And um, I did finally say, I hope you're going to pay my expenses. And from this part of the circle, a man threw some money on the floor. And I picked up the money, and I walked out of the circle, and that became God, and I didn't know it. God didn't want me, you know. And um, now today I wouldn't have picked up the money, and today I would have said something. Um, I'm not sure exactly what it would have been. It would have been on the day. But um, I, uh, I just, I, all those things had gathered up and formed God didn't want me and my soul. So I had finally seen that. And this particular day, uh, we weren't, I, I was terrified. I didn't know we had money for food. I got down on my knees, and my dog, Booger Bear, who, um, who was my first, in, uh, first child, Dick and I didn't have any kids. He lived till he was 18, would pray with me. He'd get down beside the, on the side of the bed, and he'd put his head on the bed while I would pray. And so I prayed. I said, God, I don't know if you're hearing me, but I'm in trouble, and I'm asking for help. And two hours later, there was a knock on my front door, and there was a friend of ours who was standing at the front door with eight bags of groceries, and I hadn't seen her in two months, and she said, I just had a feeling today you needed these. Now, Moses had a burning bush, and Bill Wilson had his bright light, and Barbara had eight bags of groceries, but it was every bit as much of a miracle for me. Um, And I finally took the second and third steps that day. Now, you know, I was just... I was terrified. I don't know how my, my dad had so many fears, and I had caught them all. I lived life in fear. Um, I remember, and this is just an example, when Dick and I first got married, we had a mouse in the house. I made him get rid of it, and I was working for him for a while, and we, were, um, we had an office building, and it became infested with mice, and I was the office manager. But uh, we got the poison, and I, I said, I'm going to work at home a few days, and I left all the employees at the home with the mice running around and went home. Uh, but when we moved out to the country, um, we, uh, I, I screamed bloody murder one day because I saw a rat. And Dick said, oh, it's just got to be a big mouse. And I said, no, this was a rat. So um, the n- next morning, there was a little note that was shoved underneath the bedroom door, and the door was shut, and it said, don't come out yet. I have Mickey cornered. <laughs> and uh, a few minutes later, Dick came around, and he had his hair kind of out like Bozo the Clown, and uh, he had a, his bathrobe on and his army boots and a crowbar in one hand and a non-millimeter in the other. And he had been up all night long doing war with the rats. And uh, now um, my sponsor actually did give me permission to move out a day or two because it was kind of a scene out of Willard. But um, anyway, I wasn't scared of mice anymore. I mean, sometimes when we don't deal with our fears when they're small, they get bigger and bigger. Um, I um I had um I had a tremendous amount of of ego and um I and low self esteem at the same time. I during that period of time my car died and a friend of ours gave us their drunk car. And this was a drunk car, okay? It was it was the 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 uh top of it was kind of rusted up and the back tail lights were broken and they had red reflector tape over them and on uh, rusted into the hood was Judy Loves Donnie, okay? 
from from what their wedding and somebody had spray painted it or you know or or shaving cream or something and it had damaged the um, the car, and the air conditioner didn't work and the headliner was broken uh, was falling down and so when you would ride along the dust from underneath the headliner liner and the headliner would flap out the back window it was beautiful it was a beautiful car it was also puke green, so. Um, but instead of being grateful that somebody had given me a car, I was ashamed. And, you know, I would park it a couple miles away from the meeting, or not a couple miles, a couple blocks. I wasn't that much of a, a jock, but a couple blocks. And I would kind of jog into the meeting like I was a really healthy person. But I tell you, the day that I could pull that car into the parking lot and be grateful for it, things started to change. Um, I... Uh, you know, the, the process of working these steps for me, it, it was, um, they, they just worked me, it, really. I, I mean, I worked them too, but they, they worked me for a long period of time. Uh, during that period of time, also, I was at a professional conference as a volunteer for Al-Anon, and a friend of mine came up and said, you're, you're a, you went to seminary, didn't you? And I said, yeah. And he said, would you like to be chaplain at a women's halfway house? And so I started working in the addiction field, and I've been working in the addiction field for 27 years uh, in one capacity or the other. Actually, right now, I'm trying to figure out what my next job is. So um, if anybody has any suggestions, you can let me know. But the, the process of working in this field and meeting so many of you on that capacity was really hard to imagine, too. You know, just God put all of me together, took that, those counseling courses I'd had in seminary and gave a reason for them. Um, when it came time to make amends to my grandmother, she died. And so I wrote her a letter, and I went to her grave with a friend. And I read, read this letter, and it was about um, recognizing that her problem had been alcoholism and my sadness that she hadn't been able to find recovery and uh, asking for amends for all the, those times I wasn't there for her because I didn't want to be around her anymore. And um, I read the letter, and I tore it up in little pieces, and I mixed it with some potting soil. And at her grave, I planted a camellia bush. And... Um, had some water with me, and now every year I try to go see my grandmother's grave when the camellias bloom, because it helps me remember that if I'm able to let something go, something beautiful can bloom in its place. Um, for my parents, I just I just invited them back into my life. You know, for a long period of time after Dick and I got married, I just would call them when I needed to. But I started calling them every day, and to be honest, I don't want to do it. You know, but uh, I got tired of my mother telling me every day. I'd ask her how she was doing, and she'd say, well, we're just keeping on, keeping on. And I don't know why it bothered me so much at the time. It was just her let go and let God, or one day at a time. It was just what she said. It was her, her mantra. It was how, what helped her. But she would tell me what she was fixing for dinner. You know, when Dick and I started speaking, we took Booger Bear, who probably went to more AA conferences than most of you, uh, all over the country with us. And... Um, you know, we get to a place where we were speaking, and I call mom and tell her where we were, and give her, um, you give her the phone number. And she actually never called a hotel, but I, I just included her in my life. I let her know, let her know what we're doing. And slowly, my mom and dad told me, started started telling pieces of their life. I found out that my mom had had been married before she married my dad. She had married. She met a man on the train. Uh, they had a whirlwind romance, and they got married. And he was. Um, divorced and had three kids and uh, about three months into the marriage he decided he wanted to go back to his other wife and he divorced her and I'm glad she told me because when she died I went to the safety, de box, safety deposit box and there was her other marriage decree and her divorce decree I would have been kind of confused if she never told me but 
Anyway, um, I just started learning about my parents. Um, and they started to get sick. Um, they, uh, um, my dad, before my mom, she, he had really bad Alzheimer's. And they had joint issues, and they'd fallen. And they lived in this house that they were housebound because every way out of the house was at least 15 stairs. And they couldn't do them anymore. So um, helped them move into a senior apartment that was near us and where I could visit them all the time. And we got new furniture, and we got put pictures of the family all over the walls and moved them in in um, August. And in January, I got a call that my dad had been found non-responsive, um, but that um, he was um, and he had not made it. Um, now, a couple things about that. Uh, that particular weekend, Dick was supposed to be speaking in Colorado, and on Friday he got out to the airport, and the, the plane was out on the runway for over three hours because they had mechanical problems. And at the three-hour point, I think they have to bring people back into the gate, and they deplaned everybody and said, we're going to have to get another plane. It's going to be a little while. And he was the Friday night speaker, so he had to cancel. So he was home with me when my dad died. And... Um, we had a beautiful service for my dad. Um, all family and friends came. My mom uh, had not dressed up in a while, and we had fun, uh, almost like a dress-up day, fixing her hair and makeup and getting her ready, and all her family were there to tell her she lo they loved her. And um, then we turned around, and Dick and I, as soon as the service was over, we went to uh, Hilton Head to the roundup there. And we decided to stay over a night, and on Monday we were sitting having shrimp out on a dock in Hilton Head, and I got a call that my mom had been found non-responsive, and they'd managed to revive her, but they weren't sure she was going to make it very long. So Dick and I got in the car and started going back home. And I was in shock, and he was mad. And um, I think, and he got pulled over for speeding, and I think God wanted him to be mad at the cop instead of him. Um, so... We stopped on the way back to go to the bathroom, and I went in this Wendy's, and on the Muzak in the Wendy's was playing How Great Thou Art. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never heard of him in a Wendy's. And uh, I was wondering if it was actually there, and I asked the woman in the other stall, I said, is that How Great Thou Art? And she said, yeah, it is. Isn't that funny that they're playing that at a Wendy's? And we had just sung that hymn at my dad's service. So God was in it. You know, those expect a miracle Sometimes miracles are small, but that was one of them. It let me know God was in this somehow or other. So we got back, and Dick and I were with Mom, and I was hold, we were holding her hands, and our other hand was on top of her head, and we were saying the Lord's Prayer, and in the middle of Thou Will Be Done, my mom passed away. But it was only 10 days after my dad died, and um, it was really hard to lose both parents so quick. I now, now know I, my mom just didn't want to be here without my dad, and she had just been diagnosed with Alzheimer's, and she knew she was cognizant enough. She understood she had it, and she had seen what had happened to him. And I think she just willed herself to die. Um, we, I, she, she died on Groundhog's Day. And if you've seen that silly Mil, Bill Murray movie too many times, um, I did not want to do the same funeral for my mom that I had just done for my dad 10 days prior. So we had a program service. Dick found a, recover, uh, a minister in AA who said, well, you can have it at my church. And we hadn't gotten any insurance money either. And so we had a covered dish uh, dinner that people from AA and Al-Anon brought the food. And a florist in the program brought the flowers. And a couple singers in the program brought the music. And it was an all-program service for my mom. Um, 
And that year was just one of those, and Booger Bear, our dog, had just died a few months earlier. When uh, Booger Bear died, um, he was 18, and Dick and I cried and cried and cried. Sometimes we say we're not sure we'll cry that much for each other. Because if you, if you ever looked at the word dog in the mirror, it, you, the flips, you turn it around and it's God. And there was, there was something about God's unconditional love I learned through my dog, Booger Bear. Um, and, um, I, uh, but I lost my dog and my mom and dad within a three-month period of time. And then shortly after that, Dick was diagnosed with esophageal cancer. And he'll tell you a lot about that tonight. And his mom died too. He lost his ability to work for a while. Uh, and we lost a home. It sounds like a really bad country music song, but it was, it was just what happened to us, you know. And so during that period of time, there was no stuff to be attracted to. And everything, actually, also during, we were speaking at the Atlanta Roundup when somebody stole everything we did have out of the house that had any value. So it was just, okay, God, I get it. I'm not supposed to be attached to stuff. I'm supposed to be living in your grace and with, with your purpose. Um, during the time when, my booger, when booger Bear died and my mom and dad and all these things, we had moved out to the country and we were living on this um, uh, proper, we still there, 11-acre uh, uh, lot with seven-acre lake. And God brings himself to see me every day somehow on that lake. Nature does. The day my dog died, the day my mom and dad died, but all those days and the days I was blue, this blue heron would show up. And I'm an eighth Cherokee, and I looked up the meaning of a blue heron, and a blue heron is God's peace uh, to, to be there with us when we need it. And um, several years ago now, uh, my friend, uh, I had a friend call me, um, and he asked me to go um, uh, do communion with his brother who was having uh, surgery at the Shepherd Spinal Center. And I said, Booth, I'm not ordained. He said, I don't care. Go get some grape juice and some bread and go see my brother. And so I did. And he said, by the way, um, um, why aren't you ordained? Somebody will ordain you. I, I dare you. And so um, I found a non-denominational church who, who ordained me. And at the time, I didn't know why. I was traveling the country uh, working for a treatment center, doing clinical outreach for them, and actually speaking at some professional conferences in addition to AA stuff. And I didn't know why I was doing this. But about six months after I got ordained, a sponsee of mine had a pulmonary embolism and died. And the family asked me to do the service. And I was a music and youth minister. I hadn't been the key, you know, I hadn't, I hadn't, done, a part, I hadn't done a sermon before. I wasn't sure exactly how to do this. And I was praying and asking God to show me what to do. And I was looking out my lake, expecting to see the blue heron. And instead, I, this hawk landed on the banister. And this hawk was probably, you know, halfway to the front row. It was real close. I was just looking out the glass. And the hawk and I were just staring at each other. And I think the hawk would have stayed there as long as I did. We were just staring at each other. And I finally looked away, and the hawk flew away. And I went and looked up what the hawk means. And a hawk is a messenger of God rising over the earthly plane, encouraging us to see our lives from a new perspective. And I knew I was supposed to talk about a new perspective in seeing my friend Karen's life and her death. And at that exact moment, her family decided to use Wind Beneath My Wings as the song that they were going to use for the service. So I kind of feel like my friend Karen directed her, serv her service. Um, but so I did that. 
You know, and I, I, was, I wasn't really, still wasn't really sure why, and there's still days I'm not sure why I have this ordination, but um, over the next 222 days, why that number, I'm not sure exactly, I saw a hawk every day. Uh, I saw, and I was traveling all over the country. I saw him in Seattle. I saw Seahawks in Florida. I saw hot, one day I was driving from Pennsylvania down to a treatment center in New Jersey. I saw 57 hawks that day. I told God he was showing off. But, um, you know, and what I see out of all that was I was supposed to see my life from a new perspective. And one of the things that I have tried to do is to let go of anything that I, was holding me down. You know, forgiveness is such a gift in this program. And uh, even sometimes after we do the steps and make amends, something still weighs on us. And I didn't want anything left. So I started trying to look be at my, from my perspective at living uh, a life free from, free from resentment. And I've done a lot of talking about forgiveness um, since that time. Um, and, uh, and that's another talk. But um, there are so many blessings in this world. Most of my life I had spent in yesterday or tomorrow. And I had missed my own life. I was living, you know, in the resentment or the what-ifs of yesterday, or I was living in the anxiety about tomorrow and how was I going to make this happen or could I manipulate it to go this way or how I was going to pay these bills or whatever, that I had really missed my own life. I thought I knew what one day at a time meant until we went through death and cancer and all that stuff. Um, and I really didn't know. Um, Dick will tell you most of the story of um, his cancer tonight because he always talks about it, but um, I'll tell you a couple things. Uh, when, when I first heard, and Dick didn't tell me for a while because I just lost my dog and my mom and dad, he was trying to find an answer before he told me. But by the time he told me, it was like the day before we were headed to Rochester, New York for his surgery, which he spent a lot of time finding the best place to go to for his surgery. And... Um, when, when you're from Atlanta, Georgia, you don't really want to go to Yankee land for your husband to die. And um, so I got on the phone and I started calling people in the gift of being in the service. I'm a past Al-Anon delegate. Dick's a past AA delegate. And we've spoken a lot. We got on the phone. We found people to be there for us. And when we got to the hotel where I was going to be staying while he had his cancer and everything, there were 23 people in AA and Al-Anon there to meet us. You know, if you think that this is just about not drinking or from the Al-Anon perspective, it, certainly it's not about trying to keep them from drinking. It, it's about, it's a whole new way of life. And as Lois said, this is a spiritual program. It's a way of living. We never, ever have to be alone again. If you're still on the outside of the fence and you're not quite sure and you're just kind of riding through the program and you haven't jumped in for both with both feet, jump in, the water's warm. I thank y'all for being there for me.